This is the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast with Monica Louie, episode number 110. Welcome to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast, where we help online entrepreneurs grow their influence, amplify their impact, and scale their businesses all the way to seven figures. And now, here's your host, Monica Louie. Hey, hey, thank you so much for joining me for the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. I'm your host, Monica Louie, and today I am bringing you another incredible interview. If you are a thought leader and you've thought about writing a book, or maybe you've started a book but haven't quite finished it, this episode is for you. But first, if you are new to the podcast and you don't know me yet, welcome. I am Monica Louie. I'm a Facebook and Instagram ad strategist, and I run a successful ads agency where my team and I manage ads for six, seven, and eight-figure online businesses. I'm also the creator of Flourish with Facebook Ads, which is my online training program that teaches my step-by-step system for creating campaigns that convert. My team and I have managed more than $3 million in ad spend and served thousands of students and clients. And we are in the trenches every single day, keeping a pulse on what is working now in the world of Facebook and Instagram ads. And as you know, Facebook and Instagram ads are always changing. So if you wanna stay in the know with all of these changes related to Facebook and Instagram ads, join my free email newsletter. And when you join, at monicalouie.com slash guide, you will get my free Facebook ad starter kit as a bonus. Today, I am honored to bring you my interview with my good friend, Azul Tarones. Azul is a Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author and book coach who specializes in helping leaders write and publish books that elevate their brand. As the CEO of the six-figure company, Authors Who Lead, He has enabled Wall Street CEOs and health and wellness gurus to sell tens of thousands of books. When he's not hosting his podcast called Authors Who Lead, he's working as a creativity coach with CEOs and Emmy award-winning producers to build their confidence, improve their productivity, and increase their visibility within their companies. Prior to starting a career in coaching, Azul spent over two decades as a teacher, a principal, and a founding faculty member of High Tech High Graduate School of Education. He has been a keynote speaker at international education conferences, and his TEDx talk, What Makes a Good Teacher Great, has been viewed over two and a half million times. Azul has appeared on the Smart Passive Income podcast, The Will to Change, Addicted to Success, and The Good Men Project. And his forthcoming book, named after his TEDx talk, will be published in August, 2021. In today's show, Azul shares how to know when the right time to write a book is and when it's not, the benefits of writing a book and how a book will help you grow your business. We talk about the pros and cons of self-publishing and traditional publishing and how to know which route is right for you. Azul shares the importance of storytelling and how to be a better storyteller Plus, he talks about his top tips for how to actually get your book finally written. We talk about the difference between the books that become a smashing success and those that fall flat and when and how to start marketing your book. And the answer to this may surprise you. And of course, we cover a whole lot more. But before we dive in, I want to make sure you know that you can find all the links and resources that are mentioned in today's episode at monicalouie.com slash 110. That's M-O-N-I-C-A-L-O-U-I-E dot com slash the number 110. 
Azul is such a sweetheart. Everyone who meets him loves him, and I know that you will too. So here is my interview with Azul Tronez from AuthorsWhoLead.com. Hey, Azul, thank you so much for joining me on the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you again. Welcome. Monica, thank you so much. It's such an honor always to speak to you. Well, so you and I, we've known each other for the past few years. We've been in Pat's SBI Accelerator group together, and it's been such an honor to get to know you. I, of course, heard of you when you helped Pat write his book, Will It Fly, and was his book coach during that process. But I've seen you speak, and you're an amazing speaker. I've watched your TED Talk. I mean, and you you and Steve have an amazing business that you're building together and a lot of incredible things happening. So first of all, can you just give the overview of what you guys do over at Authors Who Lead? Yeah. So we help leaders write and publish books that people love. So our journey and mission is to help make movement with the message they have. So we have a coaching program that takes them to the through the book writing process so that they create the book that elevates their brand, amplifies their message. And it's called Authors Who Lead. And that's what we do for most of our time. And then we have a publishing company Mandala Tree Press that basically has just started in 2020 that basically makes us a full-fledged publisher. So now we have a lot more leverage in helping authors get their message out there. I love it so much. But you did not start off as an author or a book coach. Can you share a little bit about your backstory about how you got into all of this in the first place? Yeah. So I actually was a school teacher and a principal for 24 four years, maybe 25, you count the coaching years that I did. And I always was interested in this idea of making a living, living online. I had listened to Pat's podcast and actually read his blog before then. And in 2008, started really paying attention to what this whole thing is about making an income online, which seems still a little bit strange that that was so long ago, but I really wanted to do it. And from the classroom, I would listen during my breaks on podcasts and read blogs and try starting businesses. And actually I did own a business before multiple businesses, but nothing online. So as a school teacher, I had spent some time kind of studying about who Pat was and as well as some other soulful entrepreneurs, I would say, Chris Gillibo and a few others like that. And he had this opportunity that him and his buddy, Chris Ducker, were going to hold a one-day business breakthrough event, which is basically where they took 20 entrepreneurs and let them come in and have their business put on the hot seat for 15 minutes, and they would give you feedback. And this sounded like exactly what I needed, because no matter what I did online, I couldn't seem to, to make the things work that other people made, like creating niche sites and writing blogs and selling ads. I just couldn't find my way. So I figured if I go in person, I'll figure it out. Well, the problem with that was is that uh, I signed up and paid and I got one of the 20 spots, which I was super excited about, even though I didn't have the money. But the fine print came in later, like, hey, what's your, what's your website? What's your revenue? What's your business model? What's your lead magnet? How big's your list? None of which I had any knowledge about, nor did I have even a business idea, let alone any of those things. So I was kind of in a critical spot where I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to this thing and I paid for it and I have nothing to, to bring. So I, uh, I had been planning to write a book because a student challenged me in my classroom because I'd published a lot of their works and most of my eighth graders were published authors by the time they left. So I decided to write a book and I did it the 30 days before the event. And on the day before I sent it off to the editor and I talked about this idea I had. <laughs> 
called The Art of Apprenticeship, how you can actually build a business or build a life through service by serving somebody. And I pitched the idea at the workshop at the One Day Business Breakthrough. And ironically, they were less interested in, they were impressed by the idea, but more so that I wrote a book in 30 days. So the people that were there who already had six and seven figure businesses want to know more. And so that's really how I started to get into coaching. I didn't realize it was such a need. And one of my first clients from having zero experience doing anything online was Pat Flynn. Wow. Wow. Okay. So what were you teaching? You, were, you said that you were helping your eighth graders publish books, many of whom did before they left eighth grade. So were you an English teacher or what, what, what were you helping or what was your right. focus? Yes, I was. I worked in a project-based school, so we really didn't have to follow traditional rules, but I did teach the language arts portion of that work. And I chose to treat them like authors and run my class like a publishing house. And so they'd come in, they'd get to work on their manuscripts, they'd do editing talks, we'd critique, we'd work on all their books. And yeah, so I was very familiar with helping the processes of coaching and writing books, depending on where you were. And I also taught graduate school in the evening. So I, I kind of had my my work cut out for me as far as like helping people write and create original work. So that's basically where I learned my self-publishing jobs early on when they first started offering it in the mid 2000s. So yeah, that's what I was teaching. That is so fascinating. So have you stayed in touch with any of your former students and, you know, do you have any stories of where they are now? Yeah. Recently a student reached out to me actually just maybe last month and through like another teacher friend said, Hey, this the student will is trying to speak to you to wants to get a hold of you. And I think you should really talk to him. And I said, great. Yeah. So he sent me a voicemail and I, I connected with him and he said, I just want to tell you how much your class impacted me. I said, well, thank you so much. It's so nice to hear. Cause out of the thousands of students that I've helped, I don't hear a lot. So thank you. He's like, no, I really, I mean, it really changed everything. And part of it was he was a student, had a one-on-one aid. He had to use assistive technology to even write any assignment, let not, not just papers, but like anything to rewritten had to be used through voice technology. And so writing was a challenge, but he always wanted to just create scripts and write and be creative. And I let him do it in whatever assignment it was. And he appreciated that flexibility and in me inspiring him. Well, he called and said, Hey, look, I just want you to know, I just got accepted to Columbia as a screenwriter and a director for graduate school. And it has a lot to do with the way you encourage me. And so he's going to be, yeah, going into graduate school for writing when I think most people wrote off the fact that he wasn't even able to do the basics with his hands. So he had to use different technology, but he's doing very well. And it was really inspiring to hear about that. Wow. That is so cool. So I'm just thinking about, you know, the impact that you made with your students and there's probably, you know, countless stories like that. And then your background kind of, do you look back and kind of see how it all made sense that one thing was leading to another or because it sounds like it, you, you didn't see how this might play out and you were struggling to find a business idea, but looking back, does it all make sense to you now? Oh, it does now. It totally didn't make any sense because everything that people were doing online were about how to make money online and like creating these niches. I owned so many niche sites, like how many domains that I buy, cheapweddingideas.com, recoveryforbankruptcy.com. Like I was trying to create these niche sites and make money at them. But the truth was my heart wasn't in it. It was just about money. And I, I don't operate that way. That's not how I see the world. So I didn't realize that my ability to help people through writing was valuable because as a teacher, you, it, it wasn't even that valuable in school. Like 
I mean, why are you helping kids publish books? They should be learning the curriculum. Like that's so uninteresting and not fun. But when my kids would write 10,000 typed pages in a year and produce these incredible volumes of work, when the other teachers were just trying to get their kids to turn in an essay, they'd be like, how are you getting them to do this? I go, I'm not, they're doing it on their own because they're motivated to publish their work. So I think now I, I see it differently. And the ironic thing is Monica, that I actually still couldn't read at third grade and flunked freshman English at UCLA and didn't find out I was dyslexic until I was almost a senior in college. So everything about writing and English was super hard for me. So it became sort of a joke that I became an English teacher because I don't have an English degree. Um, I don't even have an education degree, but I taught and, and served for like a long time because I had a skill with people in a way that maybe most people don't see things. So the value became actually that because I was dyslexic, I didn't study words the way my peers did. I studied messages and I'm like, what's being said here? What's what's underneath the surface of this message? Not what it's saying, but like what's, what else is there? So it gave me a unique lens because I couldn't do what they did. But the thing I was doing, like looking just beneath the surface wasn't a valuable skill in academia, but it came super valuable outside of it. That's so cool. I mean, just to think about where you were and that you, you mentioned the student, but you were very similar. You had a very similar background that people probably would be surprised to hear about your success with being an author and speaker and with your struggles in, you know, learning how to read yourself and figuring out the mechanics of that and to see where you, where you've come. And now I feel like from my perspective, at least it, it feels like it's coming full circle because this is now you, you struggled so hard to fit, find your ideal business idea and, and trying to follow everybody else's path. But once you focused on the right path for you and other people started to see your unique abilities in helping people clarify their messages. Now that's what you do. And your business is ultra successful in helping influencers and leaders do just that, clarify their message, which is definitely something that many people, I know me included, you know, need help with. So I'm just in awe of everything that that you've created and your entire story as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's 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 humbling actually. Because I, I don't think we followed any of the rules. And then when we tried, it kind of felt like we were pushing against the wind. And when we like just succumbed to the fact that we're unique and not trying to do it everybody else's way, that's when we actually flourished. Yes, yes. And I think that's so true. I think that you know many of us get inspired and we try and follow what that person did and what that person did. But really, once you really kind of focus in on what is important to you and your values and what you can bring to the table. And sometimes it takes other people to kind of help pull that out of you. Then that's where you can really realize the success that you were looking for in, you know, maybe some of the wrong places. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing is I also thought I had to stay in the teaching niche if I was going to make any money because it was where my skill was, in my opinion, like I had coached schools internationally all over the world. In fact, one school moved our entire family to Shanghai. That's where Steve and I moved to for two years where I was coaching international schools. I've been to Barcelona, coached schools in India, Chile, Canada, Australia. And so I thought, oh, this is the area where I think I'll have to flourish. But I, I wanted something different, but I didn't, I couldn't see anything possible besides all the quote gurus standing by their Lamborghini saying, if you want to do, do it and make money, go here. I just, I couldn't seem to find my way following their path. Yeah. And now you kind of help 
other people figure out their paths too and what their message is and and what is going to make the biggest impact. I know that you've worked not just with Pat, but with many others who we know today. And you were really at that starting point of helping them clarify their message that eventually turned into a business and a whole, you know, audience and and mission for them. Can you share some of those stories of some of the people that you've worked with or some of the some of the ways that you've helped to kind of focus in on that message and draw that out of them? Yeah, you know what's kind of interesting? I'll talk about uh, two that come to mind, but people have found me who aren't online and that's always interesting when they're not online entrepreneurs. The online entrepreneur world is pretty small but in comparison to the rest of the world. But the people that I've helped have usually come from connections. So I'll share one story. One is around someone we both know pretty well, which is Jada Selner, who is the co-founder of Simple Green Smoothies and also now the, the host of the Lead With Love podcast. She's an amazing business coach and strategist. And when she came to me to talk about her book idea was around the time she was leaving Simple Green Smoothies and sort of you know selling her interest in the company but she was trying to find out well, what am I going to be? Who, who am I now that I'm not that identity? And so we spent ye- a couple of years working on her book and her ideas and helping her find her unique lens. And it, we use their own medicine. And Jada Selner says, there's no unique messages, just unique messengers, which I think is a beautiful message in itself, but she couldn't really see it herself. She couldn't see, she couldn't, she knew what she did well, but she didn't know how to articulate that to other people. So just watching her get a multiple six-figure book contract with her book that we worked on and the proposal, I'm just thrilled because that feels great and really rewarding to help them figure that out. But another example of someone who didn't have a big audience wasn't somebody who was large as Dana Malstaff. So when Dana and I met, she was the host of a podcast and blog called Expand Your Reach. She was a mom who had a little toddler at home and pregnant with her next child. And she didn't want to return to corporate. So she was helping small businesses and entrepreneurs develop content strategy for their brand. And she wanted to use a book to leverage that idea of expanding her reach. So she figured writing a book called Expand Your Reach would be useful. She heard I was Pat's book coach. So she said, look, could you help me? I said, of course I could help you. So we actually worked, I worked with her on her book idea and through the process I gave her, which was a visual process. I, I really don't want authors to stick with words first, which is sort of like why I'm unique. I wanted her to draw the book and she felt <laughs> very uncomfortable. She's like, I already have an outline. I said, I know, but I want you to draw it out. So she, I made her draw it and she had the drawing. She had called it Expand Your Reach and I made her talk me through it. And the interesting thing was as she was talking through it, there was this sort of image. I think it was a bucket with a heart on it. And I said, what's this image here stand for? Because you didn't really mention that. And I'm not sure what this has to do with expanding your reach. Because that's my love bucket. I said, oh, a love bucket. What's a love bucket? She goes, well, that's for moms. I said, okay, I'm listening. She goes, well, I just don't think it's fair that moms actually feel guilty for loving their business more than their kids or their spouse. And honestly, some days I don't want to talk about booger and snots and you know diapers i want to talk about my business i'm excited about my business and i think moms get a really bad rap and feel guilty when they do and i don't think that's fair because dads will go play golf on tuesday at noon and call it work networking but moms would feel horrible if they went at two had a sitter and just had manis and petties and talked about their businesses they just feel like a bad mom and i think that's not right she goes because love is infinite and you can't run out of love and that's why i think women should be boss moms i said 
what what do you call them? And she said, boss moms. They should be boss moms. Like, take charge. Like, don't be afraid of that notion. I thought, that's interesting. She's like, you're going to make me do this map all over again, aren't you? And I'm like, well, I'm just curious why you spent like 15 minutes talking about this concept of a bucket of love and this thing, boss mom, but you never really mentioned it here. And I think that's just interesting. So she redrew the map. She re-outlined the book. And that's the book she wrote, Boss Mom. And she's a, she's one of the leading women in, in the mom space and has an incredible community. I don't know, it's 80, 90,000 people now. And she speaks alongside of, of the people she used to admire. And she is doing that stuff she dreamed of, but just through a different lens because her unique ability was to no longer say, you need balance. You need to work when the kids are sleeping. And she's like, no, that's not what you need. You need this. So I, I think her voice, her, her uniqueness was standing up against an old guard about what moms were supposed to be like when it comes to business. So those are just two examples of how when people come to me, I help them kind of clarify who they are in their message. I love that so much. Yeah. I, I know Dana and, and her brand is, and message are just, I mean, immense. And she's helping so many people and she's really been a voice for, for moms in our space. So when it comes to figuring out if I should write a book, if, you know, if, if that's the project that I should pursue now, or if I should keep that as a someday idea, how do you help people make that decision? And what will a book do other than helping build credibility and authority? How can a book contribute to our business? That's a great question. I, I think first of all, is be clear, what do you want it to do for you? So if you're not clear what you want it to do for you, then you're probably not ready to write a book. For some people, the clarity is I really want to speak on some more stages and I really want to be seen as the expert in my area. And I think that's what the book will do for me. Some people say, I really want to use a book to get the attention of a new market. I want to be seen in a different light and why others would just want the authority. Look, I want to be able to position myself as someone who has authority and I have zero now. And I think this would help me. And that was my case because remember I was a school teacher. I had no authority. And I wanted to use the book to do two things, find a mentor that I could leverage. That's Pat became that mentor. <laughs> kind of ironically, he asked me to help him first. And then I really wanted to start speaking on stages and actually move myself out of education. And that's the book that helped me get my first TED talk and get me some attention in a different way. So I think if you're clear about what you want this book to do for you and don't disguise it as, well, I just really want to help people. Because you can help people without writing a book, right? You don't need a book to help people. So once you get clear, that's the first sign you might be ready and then know its purpose. Like if you think you're going to sell a million copies and make lots of money from your book, then you really need to think differently about it than you want to write a book to create authority because selling lots of books as a product is one thing, but you're, you're probably going to sell a book that's transactional. Like the 100 ways to make money as a dog walker. That's probably a useful book and it's probably going to help people but it's not necessarily going to make you an authority. You're going to have to position against all the other dog walking books and figure out how to sell this book better than they sell it. And you're going to sell a lot of copies, right? It's still a $9 product that you have to see how much money you make. But if you leverage a book to be an authority to attract more coaching clients, because you are the authority in that space. Now you have the book, the podcast, the business to prove it, then you might get one client worth $20,000 where someone is trying to sell books for $9 is a different endeavor altogether. 
Oh, that's such a good way to look at it is just being very clear because I mean, we do see a lot of people come out with their books and they come out strong and they say, you know, I want to hit the bestsellers list. So New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller, or, you know, I really want to make a big splash with my book and sell thousands, thousands of copies, but there can be other benefits and other, other things that your book can do for you too. I think that is important to figure out what is, what is the goal and why does it make sense? And then you can, that can help kind of feed into when it makes sense for you to pursue that. Right. You really do. And strategically, my book job when I wrote that book, Art of Apprenticeship, wasn't to see how many copies I could sell. I wanted to, I, I did hit number one. It was really cool to see it, you know, under job internships or something beat for a work week. Like that was really cool and fun. I mean, it didn't last long, but it's still, I feel like number one, I'm excited. But what, what it really did is allow me to be introduced, not as Azula school teacher, hi, I teach eighth grade versus hi, I'm an author. Nice to meet you. That opened doors. People People know what an author is. There are still plenty of people who have no idea really what a podcast is or don't really understand how people can make money blogging or, right? But everyone, even a second grader knows what a book is and what an author does. So it immediately gives you credibility. So I use that leverage to leap out of one career into another. So that that was strategic and it was useful. So when you decide that you're going to write a book, at what point do you need to decide if you're going to go look for a traditional publisher or self-publish? Do you decide that at the beginning? Do you need to flesh out your idea? Where does that come into place? And then how do you help people make that decision? Right. I, I say it starts really early. I've interviewed and know many agents and what they're looking for is different than what you think. So a lot of times they're looking and guessing what the market is looking for by what publishers are telling them they're looking for. And publishers are telling them based on what bookstores are saying they're looking for. Like they're, It's like a ripple effect. So they're shopping around things they think will sell. They don't know what will sell, but they know what the demand is for. So we're going to talk a little bit about why self-publishing versus traditional publishing. But once you know what you want your book to do, Let's say you want to use it to help build a course program or a coaching program you have, or you want to use the book as the entry point, like a a strong lead magnet for generating client leads. That kind of book, a publisher is not looking for. They're not looking for a niche. They're looking for a broad audience, the broadest audience they can possibly have because there's more opportunity to make money there, right? They're selling products. They're selling a book as a product. They're not thinking about ways to monetize on the back end but a business person is an entrepreneur is like, how many ways can I monetize this? So when you go to a, when you think about publishing, you want to think, well, will I be able to own all the rights to this? Will I own the name? Will I be able to sell a course? Will I be able to put lead magnets throughout here? Will I be able to give things away and run contests? Those things become infinitely more complicated when you have a publisher and the publisher needs to know upfront that you're planning to do those things. So that's one decision. Like you have to think about the, the purpose. That's why the purpose, why you're doing it is really the first step. And we call it, we call it, we go through this process with our clients. It's like called the diamond method, the pathway to publishing. Basically, you first want to think about it and you want to clarify your message. What am I trying to, to do with this message? And that's what you need to do before you choose the publishing path. The second thing you need to do is commit to that idea. And then that's when you can decide, is my looking for a traditional publisher? Most publishers don't take unsolicited manuscripts. And if they do, it's an intern who is probably just out of college or in college reading them. And they're deciding the fate of your manuscript. That's how amazing books, even like Harry Potter got turned down, you know, dozens of times is because they're not necessarily looking for the book you're giving them. And then the other thing is once you get an agent, if you do have that chance, the agent is going to ask for a proposal. 
which in some cases is 60 pages long. And that proposal, half of it is how you're going to market and sell the book. And if you don't have a, if you don't have an email list of, you know, 500,000 or a following of 250,000 collectively, they're probably not even that interested because they're looking for how you're going to market and sell this book. Because the truth is they're not really going to do that for you. That those days are long gone. They, they don't have enough budget. So they are looking for buying people's audience. And then if you have a book idea that goes with it, then they're going to talk. But I mean, that example has recently had a pretty prestigious, well-known model for, for decades. She's been known as a plus size model. She has an amazing story. She has a book. I did the introduction to the agent because she asked for one and they turned her down, even though she has a decent following and a lot of notoriety and has been on the cover of Runner's Magazine. She's been in Oprah Magazine. She's been featured in Walmart. I think I saw her just the other day in Target. She's everywhere. Even her, she didn't have enough of a following, enough of an awareness to get the book deal. So I think there's a lot of at play there. You got to decide, am I willing to hustle or push and grind to get the traditional book deal? Because it's important. And then am I willing to give up my rights or a lot of my rights to do that or negotiate them at least? So that brings us to self-publishing. Why self-publishing? Well, because Honestly, you have every advantage when you're publishing on your own or some hybrid of that style because you can get access to all the same designers, editors that used to only work for the big publishing houses are now freelancing. And you can go actually get somebody from Penguin or HarperCollins to edit your book or design your cover. So they they look just as beautiful and just as amazing as some of the big books. And Pat Flynn's books are also published, though they look beautiful and you wouldn't know it. They are. So I think you have the ease of owning the content, making decisions. Then again, you have to know how to do all those things. But I think there's that's you have to decide on a lot of things before you make the commitment to your publishing path. Okay. So you mentioned clarifying your message. So I want to go back to that. So how do we start if we have a lot of ideas or we just don't know what's going to be compelling enough to be a good topic for our book? How do we start brainstorming? Should we start with the drawing like you had, Dan, do? <laughs> where do? Where do we start with figuring that out for ourselves? Well, all of us are basically selling sunshine. You, me, anyone who has a business or selling a, a story or message that the thing we do, you know, selling Facebook ads or a publishing company or coaching services in some way, we're all selling sunshine, meaning that there's somebody else also doing this. It's not, it's actually free. The thing we're doing is free. You don't need necessarily us to do it. We're just selling you the opportunity because we can. And people come to us rather than other people for lots of reasons, because they heard us first, because we have more marketing skills or because we have a better reputation or whatever it is. But the essence of our work is pretty similar. And the reason I equate that to selling sunshine is that if you try to compete on the idea in a book that your message is unique, you're, you're not going to win, meaning that your content is original because none of it is, right? There is no original content. However, when I was a kid, I got a magnifying glass in a science kit. And I thought it was really cool because you could look at things up close and that was really neat. But I figured out pretty quickly that you could burn things like your friend's arm or his leg (laughs) and maybe a few ants, which I own so karma for. But the lessons I learned is that, wow, this normally sunshine just warms your hand. It doesn't burn you or ignite a leaf on fire, but with a magnifying glass, it does. And so hyper-focusing the light, the sunshine that is free to everyone changes it. It transforms it and makes things ignite and burn. It's amazing. Well, most people focus on the message thinking that the content is the thing that actually ignites. And it's not, it's not sunshine. It's the lens. It's the magnifying glass that bends the light. 
And most people don't think of themselves as the lens. They are. You are the magnifying glass that transforms the sun into something more powerful. And that's the thing you got to focus on. Why am I the unique person to tell this story or to share it in this way? Why is my way so different than everyone else's? How did I get here? And why can I help you? Because people remember stories. They remember the way they were made to feel inside of that book, not the specific content. You can Google content. We're drowning in content. What we're missing is a unique leader, some unique messenger that helps us understand and have confidence that we can do the thing we're promising in our book. I love that analogy so much. That just, it really hit me. I mean, I, it made it so clear that we are the unique lens. I like that perspective. So you mentioned stories and how you make people feel. How can we become a better storyteller? How, how do we know which stories to include in our book? Because how long should our book be? I know should is a, is kind of an odd word, but there's always that question. How, you know, what should we, should we again be shooting for in our book? And how do we know which stories to pull in, which ones are going to be received? Should we start telling these stories to people to see what gets a a reaction? How do you recommend improving our storytelling technique? That's a great question. One of the ways you can is to remember that we're built to be anchored in story. So any book that has a long lasting impression has an anchor. Stories are great anchors for remembering things. So that's one good reason why you want to tell stories that helps people remember. It's, it's a way of capturing the thing you're talking about and then letting them take it with them, right? We're by nature in the last 10,000 years passed down our knowledge as humans through storytelling, through remembering stuff and sending it to them through stories. So that's, that's just a human quality that we have. So how do you do it? How do you know what to put in there? It has a lot to do with what you're trying to do with your book right? If you were trying to create a signature talk for a corporate sort of gig and you want to be known as that corporate speaker, then you're going to have to create some sort of unique methodology that makes you the unique messenger. But that doesn't mean you should only tell the method. Those are called textbooks. And we don't dumpster dive at the end of the school year to go get textbooks. We actually don't ever pick up a textbook. Maybe you kept the one because it's the one that costs you the most when you leave college, but we often don't return to them. It's because there's nothing inspiring enough to do that. It's just information. So you got to tell the stories that actually show the transformation you're hoping to give the reader, right? We're coming to books to have some sort of change transformation. So the best way you can do that is either share your own transformation, the one you're going on during the writing or the one you've experienced or the ones you've heard from other people. I mean, think about the books have done the best over time. They're books filled with stories. And most people think those books are like novels and they're not actually. In the nonfiction world, Chicken Soup for the Soul, I think sold 500 million copies of those books and had 40 New York Times bestselling books. That's amazing. It's a book of stories. <laughs> and that's incredible because it moves people. So I, I want to tell you that you, every one of us has a unique story to tell and a way of seeing the world that you can do this no matter what your business is. I've helped doctors, lawyers, chiropractors, dentists, football players, actors, people who survived challenges in their life, and they all have a story to tell. And some of the most extraordinary ones are from ordinary people. And just some of us, we we don't see ourselves as that extraordinary, but really we're, we're ordinary, so we don't see the extraordinary parts of us. So they're important. Now, how long should a book be? Well, I mean, I I never think there's a right way to say how long books are, but I just want people to know two things before I tell you how long I think books typically are. 
is number one is that books were made a certain length for a long time, about an inch thick. If you look at the size of your, like your middle finger or your like index finger from the, the knuckle to knuckle, that's about how thick a book is. And the reason that it's that thick is that you are competing for space and real estate on a bookshelf and in a bookstore and the spine, the larger the spine, the more real estate it took up. And you don't want to make it too big because that costs more money to print. So basically they're, they're doing it for really strange reasons, right? Real estate. This is what a book feels like. So we buy books. This is what it feels like. But some of the best books are short books. Actually, I think of weekend to sorry Tuesday with Maury's. I think of they like an artist. I think of what another book is short, even Strunk and white. They're all very short books. But if you want to know what average book lengths are nonfiction, average book lengths range anywhere from 45,000 to like 70,000 in a range words. Books are measured in words, not pages, because you can make a book any number of pages you want based on how you lay it out. But the number of words is that's about an average range. And so depending on your industry, you want a book that's average. Most people want to read a book they can finish and not like me, you buy books and you go, I'd love to read this book and you read part of it. And then it sits on your nightstand. So you have to make a decision. Some people write a book that's long enough for someone to read on a plane ride from coast to coast. And others want to make a book long enough so that people can have something to go to for five days as they listen to it on their commute in an audiobook form. All those things matter because you're thinking about your ideal reader. I hope that answered your question. That's really helpful. So, I mean, thinking about the reader, which is you know what we talk a lot about when we're building our businesses, think about our audience and who's going to be receiving the content that we're creating. And so the book is no different. Just think about what you want the experience for them to be like and how you want them to enjoy your book and how you want them to go back to it in the future. Is it a reference book? Is it just a story? I think for the most part, if we think about investing the time and energy into writing a book, we want it to be something that people remember. And so that's where the stories come in and to help make that connection. And we know that they're going to understand and take action more when they feel that emotional connection to the content. So I think, I think this all is making sense for sure. So when it comes to us actually writing the book, I feel like this is the biggest in our, at least in my mind, it feels like this is the biggest, the biggest part of it is, you know, actually dedicating that time to write the book. And you wrote your book in 30 days where I know many people who have been laboring over a book for years before they actually finish it. And so how do you coach your clients to actually get the book written and onto the page and so that they can, you know, go through the next steps of editing and, and putting out the marketing plan and all of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So just to be clear, I, I say it took me 24 years and 30 days to write my book, 24 years to think about it, start it, stop it and all these things. And then finally, when I got clear about what I was doing it for to do it in 30 days. So that clarity, that first step that clarify is the most important step because I had to get this book done because I was going to meet Pat Flynn and Chris Tucker and it was no, there was no option. So that clarity is what gave me that, the action part. That's why it's so important because if, if a book has so much resistance built into it, meaning so many things that will keep you from writing it, you can call it imposter syndrome, you can call it whatever you want, but you'll have a way of putting it off. So having a really strong why behind it is helpful. That's a really good way to get your book written. But the other thing is to know is most people weren't trained to be writers. And I know it's ironic that I was an English teacher and I'd say this, but what people were trained to do and what I did for a, lot, for a decade before I figured out how to do it differently was that we train students to be editors. That means we say, here's the rubric or here's the grade, here's the assignment. Now do it. Of course, we sit up and we do it and we figure out if we're an A student, we say, what does it take to get an A? 
And then we edit the paper to get an A. We're not thinking about how do I make this a paper that's impactful, that really moves my teacher, that makes them really think differently about the way I see the world. That's not what we're in charge of. We're editing the paper to get the grade. That's true in college. That's true for a graduate school. Like, what does it take to get the grade to pass this class or to get whatever status I want? So we're constantly trained to be editors. We write, we edit, we write, we edit, we write emails that way. Dear, so that, oh wait, like, do you? No, we, we constantly are in editor mode at, at all times. And so because we're trained to be editors first, we don't generally think about the content or the impact first. We think about, we, we don't even think about that sometimes. It's like an afterthought. So we have to do two things. The reason I make people draw isn't because I'm an artist or I expect my clients to be. I want them to disassociate the two ways that they think, the two halves of the brain, the left and the right brain. The creative side, the left brain, is basically has no limits, no bounds, no worries about how good it is or isn't. It's just creative. And kids start off with way more of a, of a left brain where they're just creative. Adults, as we're trained to be editors, do less and less creativity and more and more structure. So we get it right the first time, turn it in and get less grades, less red marks on the page. That's our goal. And so because we think that way, we sort of, as writers, you can shoot yourself in the foot by sitting down. And the first thing you do is think, well, is this going to be any good? How do I know this idea is right? What if no one likes this? What if this is a bad idea before we even put a single word on the page because we're editing out the responses of other people before we even put words out there. So the first thing is turn off the editor brain by don't edit when you write. I always tell my clients, I want you to think on the page. Don't think in your head and then write. Think on the page and it's going to be messy. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to want to fix everything. It's going to take a while to turn off the editor brain that silences your creativity. So that's the first thing is you got to get in that mode and trust that you can edit later but that's a really hard skill. Most of us don't know how to separate those two things. That's the one thing. And the other thing is you only count writing as writing. Too many of us, if you've tried to write a book or even write anything, you sit down to write. And instead of writing, you do a little research. Let me see. Oh, what's a statistic? Oh, wait, what's that quote? We're doing anything but writing. And so you can only count writing in my program if you actually put words on a page. So if you said, I wrote today, I'll go, great. How long did you write? Oh, I wrote for five hours. Great. How many words? 500 words. I say, okay, we're going to have to write that in 20 minutes. They're like, wait, wait, no, I can't do it in 20 minutes. I'm like, well, you were, were you, were you really writing? And, and they're like, well, I mean, I had to do a little research. And I was like, that's not writing. You got to stop thinking of those things as writing. The only writing that counts is words that show up on the page. So retraining your brain, you realize, oh, I only wrote 20 minutes today, even though I said I wrote for five, I didn't realize it. So once you realize writing isn't the thing that takes the most time, it's thinking. And the thing that keeps you from writing, you start to pick up pace. You start to lose some of the inhibitions you have about worrying about things. So there's just a lot of techniques that we can use to, to get out of our head about writing. Writing a book's hard. It's difficult. I don't have a good idea. Those are all beliefs. Those aren't, that's not writing and those aren't necessarily true. And you can't become a great writer by thinking about writing. You can only become a great writer by writing and you don't start as a great writer. You kind of show up somewhere in the middle as starting to find your groove. And that only happens when you write. Very cool. Okay. So when it comes to, so this is my, my analytical brain, I'm thinking, but research is important. <laughs> There's got to be a place for research. <laughs> so do you, when it comes to bringing in the research, do you recommend like limiting the research if you feel like you need to do it in order to like draft your outline or where does the research come into play? Just, just to help me ease my concerns about that. <laughs> Anxiety already leveled 10. Well, that I'm glad you're bringing this up. Most actually a great deal of my clients are 
the opposite of me. They're very much analytical. They're very much into their left, like very analytical, right? The right brain versus left brain. I always confuse what brains are much, but like the analytical brain is really high. So what I tell them is whenever you feel inclined to do research, just put a note in your writing. Oh, I need a research. I need a fact here to support this. Uh, but more than likely you use research as a, as a way to help prove a point, not to go find your point because huh. your, your research is very valid. You want to show the data that, that backs up your claim. You don't necessarily only want to be the only one saying this. So stories can actually be that research, you know, Hey, I've spoke to this person and this person, example of a client here, those are evidence-based things, right? Data can be manipulated however you want. Like there is no true data. It's just, what do I want to prove here? So think of research as the opportunity to prove a point, like support a point you've already made rather than go find a point, because to do that, you will, you will forever be researching. So I keep sometimes a log of things, quotes, articles that I heard of a quote in a book or a reference to a book. And I make a note, but I don't go research it and try to find it. I do that during the editing. Because what if I throw out that idea? I like the idea when I started writing it, but now as I'm going through my editing, I'm like, you know, that point isn't as useful. If I spent five hours researching to prove that point and I'm cutting it out, two things will happen. Either I'll force that point in there to make it work and it will be unclear as to why I'm using it, but I just feel so committed to it now. I can't let it go. Or I will just throw it out and I have wasted five hours of my research life when I could have been writing. So you want to just use it to validate points. This is my opinion. After being in academia, research doesn't necessarily prove your point. Unless you're writing a book as a researcher, which is important, then your point is research. That's different. But the reason people research is because they don't have life experience to show it. They have to use other people's empirical data to prove it. Think of the books that you loved. Unless you're Malcolm Gladwell, and this was Pat Flynn's challenge. He's like, I want to be like Malcolm Gladwell. Like, well, you're writing like, like somebody else, this doesn't sound like you. you're actually a really interesting, fun guy with all these quirky things. But then your writing sounds like you're trying to be so official and so quote smart. He's like, yeah, I want to be seen like really smart. I'm like, like Malcolm Gladwell. He's like, yeah. I'm like, but you're not Malcolm Gladwell. And I bet you he's just as talks about stats in the same way in person as he does in his book. That's just who he is. Right. It doesn't make his book better. It just means that's how he is able to communicate the world to others. He might be a very uninteresting person if you get to hang out with him. I don't know, but. But that's his style. That's who he is. He's a researcher. He, he, but if that's not your strong suit or that's not who you are, don't do that because people will sniff out books that are written that way. And I hate to break people's hearts, but the majority of the New York Times bestselling books are ghostwritten. They're not written by the person you think that they're written by. So just know that the reason they all sound the same or similar with the research is that the same 100 people are writing these books. Hmm. Well, that's super helpful about the, the research and also using your own voice and not trying to sound like somebody else, because just thinking about Pat, I mean, we love Pat for his quirks and we connect with him and his story and his books because of his personality and as his part of his audience, it wouldn't seem authentic, or I don't think we'd have that as strong of connection if he had ended up with the book that where he was trying to sound like Malcolm Gladwell. Right. And, and I'm not discrediting research. I'm just trying to say, use it as it only helps support who mm -hmm. you are. Yeah, that's huge. That's really huge. I mean, that's a great way because when you talk about five hours and then having to throw away that point, I'm like, oh, this, yes, I would fight to try and figure out a way to use it if I knew that I invested that much time into finding that, that data or that detail. 
Okay. So let's talk about promoting the book. So you've got the book written. We've gone through the editing. I know there's so many steps that, you know, between, between writing the book and then actually launching the book, you've worked with so many great authors and so many book promotions. What are the differences between those that end up making a big impact and whatever that means to the author, but really being a success? And the difference between, you know, those and then the ones that kind of fall short, is it because they didn't cl- get clear on their goal? Is it part of the, you know, promotional strategy? Is it kind of like multiple things? What are the big things that come up when you, when you think about that? Well, yeah, there's multiple entry points to this conversation. I mean, some books take a while to get traction. And so just knowing what you're doing it for and being patient might be part of that strategic plan. I think Hal Elrod and the Miracle Morning is a perfect example. It took almost a whole decade for it to be the book that we know now with the movement behind it. It didn't start off selling like gangbusters in the way he thought, but he had built a system for building community, building a whole following, and that was intentional. But if you are trying to promote and launch a book, the thing to remember is people want to know more about you as the author than you think. A lot of times my authors say, wow, but if the book's good, they'll just find it. No, you know, they'll, they'll buy it. If it's not, you know, it's that, that means it's not that great. But no, no, no. Books are marketed that they're like anything else. The only reason you know about the things you put on your body, the clothes you wear, the makeup you buy, the TV you own is because it's marketed. So you can't think of somehow magically books are different. That's not how it works. No one's going to dust off your book from 15th century and go, oh my God, I found it. It just doesn't work that way. So you have to start marketing your book way before you're comfortable, which means now you're thinking about a book, you're starting writing. That's when you should start marketing it. So that's the thing I'll be working on the next several months is start sharing my journey. One of the things I did for my book, and it was more of a rookie mistake is I started to share every day on social media that I was writing. And for 60 seconds every day, I shared the updates about my book writing journey. And people would comment. They're so interested. They're like, oh, cool. I want to write a book. And they were just interested in the process. They didn't even know what the book's about. So I spent early part of the book writing process sharing about it. And halfway through my manuscript, I lost it. And people were like, oh my gosh, because I wrote it by hand. I decided I couldn't keep focus on the computer. I'm going to write it in a journal and then transcribe it and put it into a document. And I lost it. And I was like, you guys are not going to believe this. And people were like devastated. They were like, you should look under the couch. You should go here. You should like, they were so engaged in this book writing journey that then when I, when I was by the time I said, Hey, I would love for you to support my book. They were all in. So your book writing journey is part of the marketing. It can't be just, I finished a book. Now I can market. You have to start early. Movies are marketed before they even finish cutting. And for sometimes they're finished even knowing exactly what is the final movie. Because they have to market them, you know, 18 months in advance to get attention because there's a lot of attention that you need to get. If it takes seven impressions for advertisers to get attention, why do you think your book's any different? So you have to start early, start often and realize people love behind the scenes more than you think. I would write my book, you know, because I had two teenage kids at home. They were going track practice and volleyball. I was still grading papers. You know, I think I might even been driving for Lyft at the time. Like I was, I would write wherever I could. And I would take pictures and send them and post them. Like I'm writing today in the airport floor, or I'm at my classroom, or I snuck into a real fancy hotel pool to write today to feel like I'm a famous writer. I would just post stuff and people were like so interested. And so creating the marketing plan, especially if you don't have a big audience, you've got to create the buzz. And so there's a lot of that stuff that authors don't think about because I, if you're like me, I didn't want to feel slimy and sleazy promoting myself all the time. Well, then don't 
start sharing what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it, the things you're learning, lessons you've learned. And then when you go on a book promotion tour, like going on podcast or sharing on social media or promoting it, you have spent your time kind of sharing this journey. And that's another level, barring other people's audiences. Like, where can the story give value? Where can I go help people with the message I'm sharing? So you've got to create a long runway. I think rocket ships, 80% of their fuel is expended on takeoff. Think of, that's probably true for airplanes too. Think how long the runway is and how much fuel is expended just to get it off the ground. Most of your fuel can't be spent at liftoff, at launch. It has to be expended early and for a longer runway, depending if you have less of an audience, the longer the runway. Wow. Okay. That's just the perspective for me on thinking about the promotion plan and also just that you should start talking about it. And I think that also builds accountability of that this is coming. You know, once you start sharing it, that you're working on it, people are going to get interested and be engaged, like you said, and they're going to be asking like, when is your book coming out? When is your book going to come out? And that'll help you stay focused as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, that's what kept me going. I was like, not only have this big event, I was like, I have people counting on me. Like they know. And I don't know if you still, I still keep some DVDs around, even though I don't have a DVD player, I'd have to go hunt one down just to watch them but I keep them because they have the making of and of the movies I love oh, like yeah. Lord of the Rings and the matrix. I love to watch the making of because it's so cool to see behind the scenes, like how they made that thing happen. So that's no different. You're an author. So few people write books. And I know it seems like in the entrepreneur world, everyone has a book. That's the way the perception is, right? Well, the truth is according to New York times, I think in 2008 said 81% of Americans say they have a book inside of them, but only 3% ever actually finish a manuscript. So there's a really small percentage. And of those 3%, only 30% actually ever hit publish. So now we're talking the fraction of 1% ever become published authors. So there are fewer of you out there than you think. And so if you're writing a book, people are totally interested in knowing an author. And so I think don't underutilize that, that special privilege, right? It's not ordinary. It's actually extraordinary. I love that. Okay. So I want to be respectful of your time, but you mentioned that your book led to your TED Talk which now has over two and a half million views. I mean, congratulations on that. That's incredible. So can you quickly share the story of how that came about? And I'm going to put the link to your TED Talk in the show notes too, so people can check it out. It's, it's incredible. Oh, thank you. Well, so <laughs> what actually happened was I had written a book. I had already started coaching authors and writing, and I went to a, sort of a conference for teachers, an innovative conference in the Bay Area, San Francisco. And there were some pretty amazing speakers there as a private school. So the, the speaking people there were amazing. And one of them was the New York Times bestselling author of the book called Back of the Napkin. And the author's name is Dan Rome. And I was chatting with him and I was talking about this idea for my next book. He's like, yeah, what are you working on? I said, well, for the last 24 years, I've been collecting these responses to this one single question. And he's like, well, what's the question? I said, I asked what makes a good teacher great to kids. And I collected 26,000 responses from that question and from eight different schools in, in inner city LA and suburban Texas and elite schools abroad. And what they've told me has profoundly changed the way I see education. He's like, oh man, that sounds like a best-selling book. Let me introduce you to my agent. That will, that's amazing. And my heart skipped a beat because honestly, I, it was just an idea. I never even thought about the reason I was keeping those responses i never even really thought about it being a real book. I just was playing with the idea. And because of that, I started to think a little bit about, well, what if this was a book? You know, one, it's scary to, he's telling me this could be a best-selling book, but 
what if it really was? What if it really was a book this good? So I, what I did was I got introduced to the TED organizer at Santo Domingo TED Talks. And they, the, the organizer was a, from an introduction to from a friend named Charlie Hone, who wrote the book, Play It Away. And he had spoken there before. And he said, you should talk to us. Well, he has a pretty interesting idea and he's an author. Well, I, we got on a call. I told him about this kind of crazy idea I had about these 26,000 responses. He said, you know what? Why don't you come to your TED Talk here? And I was like blown away. Well, he didn't even ask me about the topic of my other book or if he could have a copy or any of that. He just heard, hey, he's an author. He has a cool idea. That's what got me in the door. I didn't apply. I didn't have to send in a video, nothing. It was just an open invitation because I was an author to have a conversation with somebody else. That's how it helps. That's how a book can help you. So not only did I go speak there, but I took the idea I workshopped from the (laughs) Dan Rohn and said, let me just test this as a, I don't know, as an idea. So I had started writing the book and wrote the proposal and my book proposal coach said, this is not very good. And I was defeated because I was like, he said, it was a good idea. He's like, well, no, what's a good idea. Is the way you talk about what kids say. He goes, that's interesting. Talk about that. Not this other stuff about education. That's really kind of uninteresting. What kids say, that interests me. So that's what I built the TED Talk on is what he told me. He's like, do what this interesting part. And so I said, great, I'm going to go validate this book idea at this TED Talk. And if it really works, then maybe I do have something here. Because the the first proposal I wrote didn't go anywhere. It was terrible. And so that that's how it came about. That's how that TED Talk came. It, it really was finding the right idea. And I think the biggest mistake authors make or TED speakers, because I've coached TEDx speakers as well, is they're looking for that big idea. I just think the big idea. And the truth is big ideas are misnomers. There's no such thing as big ideas. Actually, there's only small ideas. And small ideas are something you can pick up and carry and talk to somebody else about. They're so small that you can remember them when you walk away from the person. And they only become big ideas when more than one person talks about. So they go to Bill. Hey, Bill, did you notice this idea? Huh? Wow, I've never noticed that, but that's so true. Hey, Jill, did you hear about, did you notice this? No, but oh my gosh, that's so true. It becomes a big idea when it spreads. And that's why Ted's idea of these are ideas worth spreading takes that principle to heart. And that's what happened. I don't promote that. I've probably only shared it five or six times the entire time, the the multiple years it's been out there. It's messaging has carried on in itself. Like people have talked about it without me. That's when it's a really good idea. It's not because I did a great job of getting a TED talk. It's because I found the idea that was worthy of spreading. That's fantastic. That's incredible. And now you told me before we hit record, this is your what your new book is about, the one you're mm-hmm. working on that you're going to be coming out with very soon. So can you share about that? Yeah. So I have struggled after that proposal and after that, the talk, I kind of was getting a little burnt out in education for a while because I had been, I had decided to leave education for the longest. I was doing both my side hustle and working in schools. And so I kind of struggled with writing this book. And so anybody who's been writing it for a while and struggled, the first book, 30 days was awesome. The second book here, I'm on year four and still can't get it right. So the reason it's really come to be is that I think what people needed to hear is, well, how do I do this in my classroom? How do I become great? And this is really for teachers who are just starting the profession or in the first, second or third year. And they're thinking, will I ever be great? And that's where I had to return for this book. The book is ideas called Great Teacher Eats Apples. And the idea is to understand that you can really grow and transform your classroom if you listen to kids and what they say and how they tell you to do things. So it's a really, it's a book about the transformation you can make by simply listening. And it seems like a very 
basic thing. And most of us think we're good at it. But the truth is most of us have never been trained to listen. And even teachers, we're probably the worst. We think we listen pretty good. But the truth is we spend most of our day talking and we've had no formal teaching experience on listening. We don't take listening in high school or middle school. We don't have advanced listening or we don't have listening teachers. So we really don't know how to listen. And so it's not our fault. It's just not part of our culture. So it's a book about how you can listen and transform your classroom through listening to students. That's fantastic. Okay. So when does it come out and where can people find it? It comes out in August. It'll be pre-sale in August and you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you find books. Love it. Okay. And this has been fantastic as well. I I know that one day I'm going to be writing a book and I'm going to come to you for help. And so I know you've got multiple programs and got your own podcast. So where are all the places that people can connect with you? Where should they go to find out, you know, how to potentially work with you and your team and also about your publishing company? Please share all the places. Yeah, great. There's there's one place they can go to authorswholead.com. There we have a link to our podcast, which is also called Authors Who Lead, where we tell stories from behind the scenes of authors, both big name authors who've written New York Times bestselling books to 16-year-olds or 11-year-olds who had their first book deal. Like it's pretty fun and you get to kind of have behind the scenes look, but that's where you can find all about our programs, the book camps we run, the coaching programs, the breakthrough to bestseller we have, but authorswholead.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I'm inspired. I'm excited. And (laughs) I will be reaching out when it's time for me to write my book for sure. Awesome. I know you should. Thank you. Thank you so much, Azul. I appreciate your time. Uh, You're welcome. Isn't Azul great? I'm always so inspired after chatting with him. So I'm honored to be able to share our conversation with you today. I would love to know what you loved about this interview with Azul. Share your biggest takeaways with us in the comments at monicalouie.com slash 110 or tag Azul and me on Instagram. I'm at Flourish with Monica and he is at Azul Tarones. And I want to give a huge thank you once again to Azul for coming on the podcast and sharing his story and his wisdom with us. Be sure to check out his podcast called Authors Who Lead and reach out to Azul and his team when you're ready to write or finish your book. You'll find all the links and resources that we mentioned in this episode at monicalouie.com slash 110. And thank you so much for joining Azul and me today. If you're ready to scale your business with Facebook ads, then check out my free Facebook ad starter kit. You can find that at monicalouie.com slash guide. The starter kit takes you through these six simple steps for creating campaigns that convert. Plus there's an awesome checklist. so You can make sure you've got everything you need before you dive into the ads manager. And if you're like me, then you appreciate a good checklist. And big news, Flourish with Facebook ads is now fully updated with all of the changes for iOS 14. So if you are ready to up-level your business this year with Facebook and Instagram ads, this is the program that will walk you through exactly how to do just that. You can learn more about Flourish with Facebook ads at monicalouie.com slash flourish. And if you're interested in learning more about how my team and I might be able to help you with your Facebook, Instagram, or Pinterest ads, go to monicalouie.com slash WWM. We have information there about our services. As I mentioned, we'll have all the links and resources that we mentioned in the show notes, and you can find those at monicalouie.com slash 110. If you found this helpful, please be sure to follow the show in your favorite podcast app so you can be notified when the next episode comes out. Brand new episodes come out every single Thursday. We've got a ton of great episodes heading your way. 
So subscribe and follow so you don't miss out. That's all for today. Take care, stay healthy, and let's flourish. Let's flourish.